If this is your first time, let me explain what we're doing this summer. We're doing a, a summer series through the book of Esther. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have one with you, Esther chapter 5 is where we'll be uh, today. And again, if you have any problems finding Esther, find Psalms, kind of in the middle of your Bible. Go to the left, you go past Job, and you'll come to the book of Esther. While you're turning there, let me remind you what we talked about last Sunday as we looked at Esther chapter 4. Uh, as you know, if you've been here for the last several weeks, but if, if not, this may be your first time. Esther is, the book is named after a young lady who, is, who becomes the queen of Persia. But Esther is not just the queen of Persia, Esther is also a Jew. And during this same period of time where Esther is the queen of Persia, there's a man in the Persian kingdom named Haman who hates the Jews and wants to exterminate them. He was the Hitler of his day. He wanted to exterminate all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the Persian kingdom. So the question is, when you come to the book of Esther, is it mere coincidence that a Jewish woman who is queen of Persia is queen during the time, the exact time, when the Jews are about to be exterminated? What if, what if God placed this lady in the position she's in as queen of Persia for such a time as this? What if it was not coincidence that she's queen of Persia, but providence that she's queen of Persia? Now, that sounds really good, but there's, a, there's, another, there's another side of that coin. The flip side of the coin is this. What if she's killed with the rest of the Jews because she is a Jew? If she tries to step in, if she tries to make a difference, if she tries to make it known who she is and she tries to keep the Jews from being exterminated, what if they just exterminate her too? So that's the, that's the tension in Esther chapter 4. Esther found herself in one of those defining moments in life. Does she continue to live as the queen of Persia in the comforts of the palace? Or does she identify herself with the Jews and perhaps face the same outcome that they would face? So, just for review, Esther chapter 4, let's start at verse 15. This is how we ended last Sunday. It says, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Mordecai was the man who raised her, her adoptive father, if you will. Go gather all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my maids will fast as you do, and when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, uh, parentheses, for her to do so, it would be against the law. You don't go into the king's presence unless you're invited. So she, so she says, I'm going to go into the presence of the king, even though it's against the law. And she decides, if I perish, I perish. She's determined to make a difference. She's determined that no matter what the consequences to her personally, she's going to try to make a difference in this situation. And if I perish, I perish. Now, as you look at your Bibles, between chapter 4 and chapter 5, you'll probably find a tiny little white space. I actually measured the white space in my Bible, and it's about a quarter of an inch. Now, listen very, very carefully. That little space represents a break in time. Now, of course, there are white spaces between every chapter of the Bible, and I'm not implying that the white spaces are inspired. But in this case, I just want you to understand, there's something going on in that little white space. Between chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's a whole lot going on in that little white space. 
in this passing of time, it really is basically a, a, a space of suspense because we don't know what's going to happen. We, in chapter 4, with Esther saying, and if I perish, I perish, and in that little white space, three days are passing. What's going on in those three days? What's happening in that white space, if you will? Here's what's happening. Esther is preparing to go into the presence of the king, not knowing what will happen. In that little white space, in those three days, Esther is prayerfully going before the Lord, saying, I don't know how this is going, what the outcome is going to be, but I'm going to move forward because I believe this is why I've become queen of Persia. It was the biggest moment of her life in that little white space. So I hope you brought something to write notes with. I'm going to give you a couple of things as far as lessons from her life. I'm going to give you the first one right now, and then we'll kind of unpack it in Scripture. But here's the first thing I want you to learn from the book of Esther, or from this story in chapter 5. Here's the first lesson from Esther. Number one, when you're facing a pivotal moment in your life, take time to fast and pray. In verse 16, I want you to notice something. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 16. Go and gather all the Jews who were in Susan and fast. Notice those two words. Fast what, church? Fast what? For me. Don't eat or drink for three days. Now remember this, this time period. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I am a mage will fast as you do. So here's what you need to understand. This time of fasting implies that they were also spending time in prayer. You see, the Jews would not fast simply to lose weight. They're fasting because it allows them to devote more time to prayer. So Esther challenges Mordecai, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go round up all the Jews you can find in the city of Susa and tell them what's, what's happening. And I want you to ask all the Jews in the city of Susa to fast with me and to fast for me. And how long, answer, answer the question, how long were they to fast? Three days. She says, me and my maidens will do the same thing. We'll fast for three days. And then we'll see what happens. We'll see what God does. In other words, as she faced this defining moment in life, she's determined the way to face this defining moment, the way to face this largest decision she's ever had to face, this uncertainty in her life, the way that she decides to face it is this. I'm going to turn to the Lord. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to fast before the Lord. I'm going to pray to the Lord, and I'm going to allow Him to guide my steps in the days ahead. You know, that wouldn't be a bad way for you to approach life either, would it? That if you're facing large decisions in your life, don't you think maybe things would go better if you turned to the Lord? And you've prayed to the Lord? And you trusted in the Lord? And you fasted before the Lord? And you waited before Him? And say, I don't know how I'm going to do all of this. I don't know the decisions that I need to make. But God, I just want to, I want to take some time and focus on You. The purpose of prayer and fasting to take some time, to set aside some time, to focus on the Lord and on His will. Do you remember Isaiah's words about waiting? Isaiah chapter 40, that famous passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. Isaiah says this, He, God, gives strength to the weak 
And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Then even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. In other words, this can happen to any of us, regardless of age. And then he says, listen to this, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Those who wait on the Lord. This is what Esther was doing. For three days, she's waiting on the Lord. I want to say to you today, you may feel weak and even intimidated by what is before you. But if you will turn to the Lord and if you will wait on the Lord, the Bible says that He can exchange your weakness for His strength. I think that's a pretty good trade, don't you? To be able to say, God, I'm coming before you in this time of fasting and prayer and I'm just seeking you and I'm waiting on you. And the Bible says that when you turn your attention to the Lord like that, that He exchanges your weakness for His strength. This is what Esther is doing. This morning in my personal quiet time, I was reading in Psalm 37. And as I read through Psalm 37, I came to verse 7. And here's what it says. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Maybe the reason God brought you here today is just for that little phrase. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Wait. Can I say to you today that one thing that I've learned as I walk with God, waiting on the Lord is never a waste of your time. The time that Esther spent fasting and praying was a silent and powerful parenthesis in her life. And it might be that, that one of those white spaces has showed up in your life right now. Maybe it's a time where you're trying to decide something, and maybe it's a time of uncertainty, maybe it's a time when you're a little scared about what the future holds. How do you approach that time? Perhaps this is a good time for you to spend some time fasting and praying, and maybe even calling some close friends, just like they did in this text. She said, you go out and find everybody you can find in the city of Susa. Maybe it's a good time for you to call some friends, maybe some people in your Bible study class and say, hey, would you join me in praying? Would you join me in fasting for a few days? Would you help me to seek the Lord on this matter? And here's what happened. In those three days of praying and fasting, Esther gained the strength that she needed. So how do you know that, Pastor? Because as as chapter 5 opens, here's what we read. Chapter 5, verse 1. Beyond the white space, here's what we read. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. Now I want you to notice it was on the third day. Why did Esther ask everybody to fast and pray for three days? Interesting question. Why didn't she ask everybody to fast and pray for two days? Or why didn't she ask everybody to fast and pray for four days? Or why didn't she say, would you fast and pray for me for a week? But very clearly, she asked everyone to fast and to pray for three days. And the Bible says in chapter 5, verse 1, at the end of the third day, or on the third day, this is when she took her action. Why three days? It might be... This is speculation on my part, but it might be that the three days, there is more than arbitrary number. Three days may have significance. You see, somehow when you study the Bible, three days is a transformative time in the Bible. Now just Let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his own son. 
The Bible says at the end of three days, suddenly a substitute, a lamb, was provided. How many days was Jonah in the belly of the great fish? Anybody know? Three days. Hosea chapter 6 verse 2 is an awesome verse, and here's what it says. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. There just seems to be this pattern in the Bible that God does significant things after three days. And in fact, if, you, if your mind fast-forwards to the New Testament, guess what happens in the New Testament? Jesus Christ is crucified, he's buried, and on the third day, he's resurrected. There just seems to be this pattern in Scripture. For three days, Esther fast and pray, and maybe that was not an arbitrary number. Maybe she understood that God seems to do things after three days. So here's a principle that may help you. If you're in turmoil right now about a decision, if you're anxious about something that you're, fa- you're facing, perhaps it would be a good time for you to fast and pray and wait three days before you make a decision. Now, let me be very clear. That principle is not taught in Scripture, but the pattern at least is there. That God does things significant in a period of three days. So maybe it would be worth your time to say, you know what, let's just wait. Let's wait for three days. Let's fast, let's pray, let's talk to the Lord. In that time, let's see what He does in us and what He does in this situation. It may be worth it to wait three days. So number one, if you're facing a pivotal moment, take time to fast and pray. Number two, second lesson we learn from Esther is this. Fulfilling God's purpose for your life may involve taking a huge risk. Fulfilling God's purpose for your life may involve huge risk. Let me tell you something. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I just about guarantee you, every one of you who know Christ as Savior, you want your life to count, don't you? You want to do something significant. You want to fulfill your purpose in life. But here's what I've learned. If you decide that you're going to fulfill your purpose in life, if you're going to strive for the reason God put you here, may I say to you that eventually that's going to cost you something. Eventually there's going to be a huge risk involved. Sure was for Esther. Chapter 5, verse 1. I know we've read the words, but I don't know that you've understood the huge step of faith she was taking. Here's what it says. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, not just a dress, not just a fancy gown. She put on her royal robes because she wanted to look like the Queen of Persia. Now, imagine the knot that was in her stomach as she stepped in front of the king's hall. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. You say, yeah, yeah, but, but it all turns out okay. Listen to me. She didn't know it was going to turn out okay. She didn't have any idea how it was going to turn out. She literally was putting her life on the line. I, can I confess to you? I've never done that. I've never trusted God to such an extent that it may cost me my life. But that's exactly what she was doing. She had not read the story. Nobody told her it's going to be okay. So she put on her royal robes. She looks like the queen of Persia. And in my mind, she probably hesitates because as soon as she goes around that corner, she's going to be standing in the king's court. And as soon as she steps into the king's court, if he is predisposed to do so, he can have her executed. She knows that the last queen, it didn't go so well for her. 
that he wasn't pleased with her, and immediately she was removed from the kingdom. And as she steps into the king's court, and suddenly she's facing the throne of the king. It's probably good that she had royal robes on because her knees were probably knocking. And that covered her knocking knees. Standing there, waiting for the king to respond. You know that archaeologists have actually, in, in the area around Susa, archaeologists have actually found a stone relief carving from this time period in which on the stone carving, it's, a, it's the carving of a Persian king seated with a, with a scepter in his right hand on the throne. And behind the king is a soldier with an axe. And it's a depiction of life or death. It's a depiction of scepter or axe. It's a depiction of what Esther was facing. That if you came into the king's presence un, uh, uninvited, there was a soldier behind him or beside him who as soon as somebody came into the king's presence, it was an immediate death sentence. Unless, unless the king took that gold scepter in his right hand and if he was in a good mood that day, he could extend the scepter and if you touched it, you were spared. Archaeologists have uncovered this stone relief, this carving that depicts that. Now, Esther, Esther steps into the presence of the king, and let's see what happens. Verse 2. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. Remember, he hasn't seen her in 30 days, if you'll remember from last week. Hasn't seen her in 30 days. So when he sees her standing there in her lovely royal robes, the uh, Bible says he was pleased with her. And Watch this. And held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Suddenly, all of her fears were alleviated. Suddenly, her first prayer had been answered. Suddenly, she knew she was going to live because she had touched the tip of the golden scepter. Now, verse 3. He asked a very good question. The king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, if it will be given to you. The king obviously could tell something was wrong with her. I don't know if it was just the, the look on her face. Perhaps there was a tear going down her cheek. Or maybe it was just the fact that he knew she would not come in and risk her life in his presence unless she had a very good reason. So he's asking her, why have you come today? What's wrong? I can tell something is bothering you. So tell me what's wrong. Look in verse 4 and 5. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. I don't know about you. Everybody look up here. I don't know about you. I wouldn't have done it this way. If Haman is my greatest enemy, if he's the one that's going to exterminate the Jewish people, and I finally have a private audience with the king, I finally have the opportunity to plead the case and hopefully to spare the lives of all the Jewish people, I don't want Haman there. Are you following with me? Why in the world would you ask Haman to be there? Why in the world would you invite the guy 
that's trying to exterminate you and all your people, why would you say, I want to have this private banquet, and oh, by the way, bring Haman with you? Lots of suggestions have been made as to why Esther did this. Some suggest that perhaps she wanted to see how strong the bond was between Xerxes and Haman. She, wanted, she was trying to formulate in her mind, how do I approach this? What do I say? What do I don't say? I need to understand how deep that bond is between the two of them. So maybe that's one of the reasons. Some have suggested maybe she just wanted to look into the eyes of Haman when the truth came out. That she wanted to see his face when the truth came out. I think it may go back to the three days of prayer and fasting. And during that time of praying and waiting, perhaps God filled her thoughts with a plan. Something like this. Give a banquet. Invite Haman. And this is what you're to say. Regardless, Haman's presence creates a good deal of tension and suspense in the story. So we pick up the story again in verse 6. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. So here's the way it works out in, in the Persian days that you'd have the banquet, you'd eat and everything, and then after the banquet, no business would be conducted during the, the eating, during the meal. And that was reserved for later when you were sitting around drinking the wine after the banquet. So the meal has been conducted. They're now sitting there drinking the wine. It's near the end of the evening, and the king says, Now, Esther, what's wrong? Tell me why you needed to see me. Tell me what's going on. he says, before she answers, he says, I want to go ahead and tell you now. I've told you once, I'll tell you again. Whatever it is, I'm going to give it to you, all right? Even up to half the kingdom. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that, that phrase, half the kingdom, probably is not to be taken literally. It, it really is an exaggerated hyperbole. It's a way of saying, you know, I, I'm feeling generous towards you. I'll give you anything that you want. Don't worry about the cost. It doesn't matter what it costs. I'm going to give you what you want. That same phrase, the exact same phrase, up to half the kingdom, is found in the book of Acts where Herod is watching this girl dance and he's so pleased with her. He says, what is it that you want? I'll give you anything that you want up to half of the kingdom. And that was the, the lady who said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. He literally didn't mean I'm going to give you half of my kingdom, but it's a way of saying in that day, I'm just feeling generous. It doesn't matter how much it costs. Tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. All right, so... Her response is quite surprising. Verse 7. Esther replied, My petition, my request is this. We know what's coming, right? Not necessarily. Verse 8. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet, and I'll prepare for them, and then I'll answer the king's question. What? Does this make sense to anybody? He's just told her twice, not once, but twice, tell me whatever it is that you want, I'm going to give it to you. What, you just tell me what you need. If it, half the kingdom, doesn't matter the cost. Esther, what is it you want? I'm going to give it to you. And when he opens the door wide like that, she doesn't walk through it. She stalls. 
Why didn't, why didn't she immediately inform the king of Haman's evil plot? Well, unfortunately, we can't read her mind, so it's hard to say with certainty, but there are at least four possibilities. Some say it was simply women's intuition, that, that she knew it was not the right time. How do we know she knew? I don't know, but, but women have this intuition. And she just knew it wasn't the right time. Guys, if you're married or if you've got a girlfriend, listen, you understand women's intuition, right? They just have a feeling sometimes. And I've learned that if you listen to their intuition, most of the time, they're right. <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> It's recorded. You go, you go back and watch it. So some say, you know, she planned this banquet and, and as, as the evening wore on, there was just something inside of her. It just wasn't the right time. She knew it wasn't the right time. Some say, no, that's not what happened at all. What happened at all is that she, what happened really was this. She chickened out. Now that's a very real possibility. I've chickened out on a time or two, haven't you? You intended to say something, you intended to do something, and when the opportunity came, you froze. The words just wouldn't come out. Some say that's, that's what happened here, that she needed to pray some more. She had to go back and just, you know, that night she got on her face before the Lord, some would say, and said because she chickened out. This is interesting. A third option is this. The Jewish rabbis over the years have said, no, here's what happened. She was trying to make Xerxes jealous of Haman. I mean, she wanted Xerxes to wonder, why is it that she keeps inviting Haman to dinner? And that 24-hour period of time was just enough time to make him curious and to make him angry and to make him suspicious so that when she told him what Haman had done, he'd be more ready to pull the trigger on Haman to do him in. So some would say, listen, she, was, she wasn't a woman's intuition at all. It wasn't that she was chicken. She was conniving. And all the men said, amen. <laughs> <laughs> you missed the chance there, but I understand. Wife sitting next door, I understand. So some say the, the Jewish rabbis over the years have said that's what she was doing, just trying to, to make Xerxes suspicious and angry towards Haman. Others would say, no, it's divine timing. God was delaying this great exposure until after the king honored Mordecai. Because, you see, if you keep reading in chapter 6, first part of chapter 6, that same night, Morde the king can't sleep, and, he, and he's read, having someone read the king's annals to him, and he discovers that Mordecai saved his life one time and was never rewarded for it. And so some would say it's just divine timing that this needed to occur so that the next night the king would be more sympathetic toward Mordecai and his people. That, to me, makes sense. That maybe it was just divine timing. But whatever the reason, it certainly adds to the suspense of the story. And so, here's where we, we've, we're kind of leaving this part of the story. It's where she says, okay, come back tomorrow night. We'll have another banquet. And then I'll tell you what's happening. Now, question. What do you think is going on in Haman's mind right now? He's pumped up. He's excited. Listen, 
He's been invited, the only person, he's been invited to a private banquet in the king's residence, just the king and the queen, and they apparently need to discuss some personal matters, and he was invited to that. And not only was he invited to that, he was invited back the second night. So he's, he's feeling good about himself. He's thinking, dude, I am so important. In fact, look what it says in the text. Verse 9, second part of verse 9, or first part. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. He walks out of the palace bursting with pride and ego. I mean, he is the man. He is happy. He is high spirits. He's so excited that nobody else in the kingdom has got the access to the king and to the queen like I do. Nobody else gets invited to these banquets like I do. And I've not only been invited once, they want me to come back tomorrow night. They might even want me to move in. I mean, I'm telling you, it's, it's just wonderful being Haman. And then as he's walking by, walking on air, all of a sudden he sees Mordecai, that Jew. That Jew who would not bow down to him. This time that Jew would not stand up for him. And it ruined his day. Look, ruined his mood. Look at verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Filled with rage. Don't miss that. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth. Now now get this, this is amazing, verse 11. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. I mean, if you were to look up narcissist in the dictionary, Haman's picture ought to be right there. I mean, here's a man who is in love with himself and loves telling people how good he is. How much he's got, how much he's accomplished, all the way that that the king has honored him. He's so excited about everything that he has accomplished. And he says, verse 12, and that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to a banquet she gave. And, get this, She has invited me along with the king tomorrow. I think she's like in love with me or something. You know, she just, she's invited me once and then she invited me a second time. I mean, it's just amazing. He's so excited and so happy. But then it says in verse 13. But all this gives me no satisfaction. As long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. With all the glory and all the wealth and all the power that Haman has, you would think that he would be satisfied. But men like that are never satisfied. You see, Haman has become addicted to his hatred. We tend to think of bondage in terms of an addictive substance like alcohol or drugs. Or an addictive activity like porn. But I want you to know something. You can also become addicted to your hate. You can become addicted to the hate that you feel towards somebody else. And you have to have it every day, just like any other addiction. 
Every day, you have to think about that person and how bad they are and what they've done. And every day, you can't be happy because you're fixated on that person. You're fixated on your Mordecai. And you can't be satisfied with anything because of that person. And you blame that person. And it's all their fault, and you can't be satisfied no matter what you have, no matter how big the house is, no matter how many cars that you have, no matter what job that you have, or how much money you make, or how many kids that you have, you can't be satisfied because you are addicted to your hatred to this person. You're Mordecai. And just like Haman, I'm here to tell you, When you hate somebody, you lose. Because you can never be satisfied. Just like Haman, you can never be satisfied. Life loses its satisfaction because of your addiction. Now, Haman's wife has listened to all of this. Before I tell you what she says, guys, let's talk for a moment. I'm going to word this very carefully. Guys, your wife probably is very supportive of you. Your wife probably encourages you. You're, when you come home and you've got a problem, you've got a frustration, your wife is probably your greatest cheerleader and encourager. Most of the time. But... Isn't it true that sometimes your greatest cheerleader and encourager, sometimes they just get tired of hearing you whine, right? And they finally say, put your big boy pants on and do something about it. <laughs> You've been whining long enough, do something about it. And that's exactly what happens to Haman. You, it's, it's different words, but the same idea. Verse 14. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. Translation, stop whining and do something about it. You're the second most powerful man in the Persian kingdom. It's time that you act like it. If you don't like this guy, tell somebody to build a gallows, make it 75 feet high so that everybody in Persia is going, or in this area is going to see it. Go to the king tomorrow morning, ask the king for permission to hang this guy, and then you can go to the banquet and relax and be happy. I've heard enough of your whining. Just go do something. Have a gallows built. Now, when you hear that word gallows, and you see that word in the text, you probably think in terms of a Western movie, right? The only gallows we know about are those kind of gallows that are built where they, they hang a rope from it and put it around your neck, and the person dies by hanging with a rope around their neck. But the Persians were known for a different kind of gallows. They, the Hebrew word here literally means tree, or it could be translated stake or pole. You see, in Persia, most of the time, they did not hang someone with a rope. They impaled them on a stake. Literally, a stake was thrust into their body, and then their body was hung on the pole. That's what it means by build a gallows and hang him on it. You know what it literally means? 
thrust a stake through him, put him on the pole, hang him up there, and let everybody in Susa see him. It's a slow, agonizing, painful death. And if you'll do that, Zeresh says, you can go to the dinner and be happy. Haman thinks, that's a great idea. His hatred has so consumed him, it's brought him to the point that only the agonizing death of his enemy will satisfy him. So he instructs his men, build a pole 75 feet high. Do you know how, how tall 75 feet is? 75 feet tall is seven and a half stories tall. We're not sure if the pole was actually that big or if they put it on top of the city wall and it still was 75 feet up. But regardless, it was 75 feet in the air, seven and a half feet in the air where they're going to impale Mordecai on this pole and hang him there and watch him die and then go to the dinner and be happy. And that's the way the story ends in this chapter. Haman has this great plan. I'll instruct my men to build the gallows tonight. Tomorrow morning, I'll go see the king. And by, by noon, I'll get to see Mordecai hanging from that stake. Now, before I leave, before you leave, before we leave this text, I, I, I want to remind you, before we leave this story, of another man who was hated and hung on a pole to die. He was despised and hated by so many, they wanted to see him die an agonizing death. But do you know why he died? It wasn't because of Haman, and it wasn't because of what he had done. He died because of you, because of me. He died because we're sinners, and, and the only way to satisfy the demand of a holy God was to pay for the penalty of our sins. Jesus was not hung on a pole, impaled on the pole, like we're talking about here, but indeed he was nailed to the pole, nailed to the tree, nailed to the cross. And that was the required sacrifice for your sins and for mine, the pure blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. But thank the Lord, he not only died on that tree, that awful death that it was, and he died in your place and mine for your sin and mine, but thank the Lord when they put him in the ground, he was resurrected on the third day on the third day he was resurrected and because he was resurrected he can now offer you new life he can offer you forgiveness of your sins he can offer you a, an eternal home in heaven but, but you got to see this remember in the first part of chapter 5 Esther is standing in the presence of the king and she deserves certain death and the only way that she escapes certain death, don't miss this, the only way she escapes certain death is this. The king extends the golden scepter, she touches it, and once she reaches out her hands and touches that golden scepter, then her safety in his presence is guaranteed. I want you to know that today, had it not been for the cross of Jesus Christ, we would all deserve to die in his presence. And when we reach out, by faith and touch the cross-shaped scepter of God. Our safety in God's presence is guaranteed. You see, when I die and take my last breath, when I step into heaven, 
If they were to ask me, why should I let you into my heaven? It won't be because I'm a preacher, and it won't be because I lived a good life, because quite frankly, it hasn't been that good, at least not compared to holy God. But it will only be because I have placed my faith that Jesus Christ died on that pole, that tree, that cross for me. And when by faith I touched that scepter, free and safe to be in God's presence for eternity for eternity I don't know if you've ever experienced that but really what you have in Esther chapter 5 is two pictures two different lives Esther the picture of a life of, of a lady trying to live for God trying to be faithful to God Haman Haman is a picture of a life of what it looks like when Satan is in control, filled with rage, filled with hatred, living his life to fulfill Satan's desires. Which picture best represents you? Are you living your life trying to fulfill God's desires, God's purpose? Or are you living a life where you are fulfilling the desires and purpose of Satan? I didn't ask you which one you want. I asked you which one you're doing. Now, every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to close with this. You know, the, the wonderful, the good news today that I can share with you is if you want to change, if you want your life to be different, it comes by faith or by grace are you saved through faith. Grace is God offering you what you do not deserve. Faith is you receiving what God is offering. And the Bible says when you express your faith in God's grace, you can be saved. So today, this is your chance, your opportunity. For some of you may have to come to this altar today. and If you want to talk to me, I'm here for you. But it might be that you have to come to this altar. Just talk to the Lord and say, you know, God, I know that I'm saved. But, boy, I sure have let the devil have a foothold in my life. My life sure has been filled... I'm addicted to hatred right now. And I recognize that's wrong. And I'm fulfilling the purposes of Satan rather than the purposes of God. And I'm going to let that go. God, with your grace and your power, I'm going to let that go. So, Lord, I pray that your will be done. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.